Let's uh, open up our Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 uh, to 20. And these readings will, will all become clear as to why we're having them when Roger uh, preaches in a moment. So Genesis 14, verse 17, after his, that's Abraham, after Abram's return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then turn forward to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is our focus last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday, a series of three. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A reading from the New Testament letter of Hebrews. And these New Testament letters are, uh, or these uh, passages we're reading help us interpret what the psalm means. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, through to chapter 8, verse 2. And in this passage, Jesus is compared to Melchizedek, the, the priest. So Hebrews 7, verse uh, 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Amen. And may God speak to us through his living words. Well, let me add my welcome to Chalmers this morning, especially if it is your first time here. You're very welcome among us. But I wonder what you made of the readings. I mean, it's what on earth is going on? Kings, priests, a guy called Melchizedek talk about Levitical this and that and the other. Perhaps that sounds just like the kind of religious mumbo-jumbo that's irrelevant to normal life that you might expect if you're new to church. No connection with 21st century Edinburgh. But actually, although some of the phrasing is strange to our ears, this morning I'm hoping we'll come to see that the truths of Psalm 110 verse 4 are some of the most important things you can ever hear in this life and for your eternal well-being. Let me lead us in prayer for God's help to understand. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for being a God who speaks across the centuries. And we pray now for help to understand what a wonderful thing you've said in Psalm 110 verse 4. In Jesus, our great priest's name. Amen. Well, just before we do turn to Psalm 110, I've got a question for us to consider. It should come up on the screen. It's this. How confident do you feel approaching God? How confident are you to stand in God's presence? Now, there may be one or two here who are convinced there is no God, so you do think that's an irrelevant question. You're still welcome, if that's you. But actually, for most people, I think even if you're not a Christian, most people have a sense that maybe one day, maybe there is a God out there. Maybe I will stand before him. 
And the Bible would confirm that and say, yes, all of us are going to stand in front of our maker and face the question, why should I let you into my heaven? How confident are you of your answer? Even if you're a Christian, how confident are you? Where would you put your confidence? There's a good diagnostic, actually, of that, and which is to ask this. Um, how are your quiet times at the moment? How is your devotional time with God? And how confident is it? Do you notice your confidence rising and falling? And why? Is it the weeks when we serve a lot and we have a conversation about Jesus with someone, a colleague or a neighbor? Do we find ourselves with a slightly kind of stronger strut when we walk into God's presence, turn to the Lord in prayer? Of course, we know in our heads it's not about our performance, but I just wonder if we sometimes live like it is. Or the flip side of that, maybe some here are currently avoiding devotional time with the Lord because you've made a mess of things. Perhaps over the summer, you've wandered into sin. Or you've just not got round to reading your Bible and praying. And to be honest, how would you restart the conversation? Maybe you're ashamed to approach the living God. Or maybe for some here, there's just a permanent lack of assurance. You could be a new believer or a long-standing believer, but perhaps you just have this recurring sense that you're just never doing enough, never hitting the mark, never worthy. I remember, I may have told this story before, it's just burned into my memory. A, a, a person I met in London, he'd recently become a Christian. He was in a small Bible study group with me and some others, and I noticed he never prayed for anything at the end of studies when we all shared our requests and prayed. And I asked him afterwards, why is it? Why don't you pray? And I'll never forget his answer because it so surprised me. I, I expected him to say he was nervous in the kind of public group. Or possibly he didn't know what to pray for. Or maybe he didn't know what form of words to say. But his actual answer was this. How could someone like me deserve anything from God? Turns out, since he became a Christian almost a month before, he had been praying, but only ever saying sorry, never asking for anything. And it struck me, actually, there was something kind of half right in the mix there. I mean, he at least had a genuine sense of the absolute perfection of the living God. He knew that God was holy and he was not. It put my casual view of this kind of chummy God who always agrees with me, it put me to shame, actually. He was kind of half right. But, of course, he was more than half wrong. He didn't realize quite how good the news of Jesus is. He didn't know he had a priest like the priest of Psalm 110, verse 4, because in Jesus we can have real confidence. That's the thing to remember this morning if you forget everything else. In Jesus, we can have real confidence to approach God. Not at all based on us, not based on our track record, not based on our current service of the gospel or our, our charity work, our performance in evangelism, our diligence reading the Bible, or our sacrifice of living standards to give to the gospel. Not any contribution from us, but entirely because of Jesus Christ, the eternal priest. 
And that does mean if you're not a Christian here, please hear this. If you want to be safe that day when you stand before the living God, there is only one answer. Jesus, the eternal priest. Let's turn back to the Psalm 110 passage. It's on page 509. It will help to have it open. There's an outline on the back of the service sheet. Page 509, Psalm 110. And we'll start by just getting our bearings. Um, If we go back a a couple of slides, um, we'll just get our bearings. um, Oh, no, that's okay. You can go, sorry, go back forward one. Um, Psalm 110, we've been uh, looking at... um, Verse 1, last week, the Lord says to my Lord, and there's this kind of appointment of a king last week, an appointment of a king, Jesus, this ultimate king. Let's skip on one more slide, sorry. We said last week that Jesus is not the kind of private, imaginary friend of Christians. No, he's the public sovereign of everyone, everywhere. He is appointed as king over the whole world. That was last week. But this week we're in verse 4. Just look at it with me as I read verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the, the first half of that job announcement is quite clear, isn't it? What's the job? You are a priest. How long is it for? Forever. And then there's the bit at the end after the order of Melchizedek, at which point we might well be saying, who? Melchizedek who? But I want us to say, before our eyes kind of glaze over that bit and just start thinking what's for lunch, actually, the truth contained in that name is absolutely wonderful. By the end of the morning, I hope we will deeply cherish the fact that Jesus is a different kind of priest, a a priest of a different order, Not like a priest you could find around Edinburgh if you went to certain churches. Not like a priest you could find in ancient Israel. But actually, a priest like Melchizedek, a major, major upgrade of a priest. That's where we're going to be going. But first, we have something to note. This is point one on the handout on the back of the sheet. Point one, please note, Psalm 110 verse 4 is a fixed fact of the universe we live in. Psalm 110 verse 4 is a fixed fact of the universe we live in. However strange this verse may sound to us, it's something none of us can actually afford to ignore. Why do I say that? Well, just look at how the start of the verse stresses how important this statement actually is. They didn't have highlighter pens back when this was written or kind of bold fonts. But just look at how the language emphasizes the importance of what's said. Firstly, it's a direct quotation from the Lord, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. The Lord is speaking. The Lord cannot lie, never lies, always does what he says. That's one reason to listen to this. But secondly, notice here, he swears. He swears, that is, he's sworn on oath. Very rare, actually, in the Bible you get things like that. Doubly underlined, doubly, unbreakably going to happen. And then thirdly, in case you missed the point, he will not change his mind. Triply underlined fact. So here's the significance. You may have walked into church thinking that the question of who is God's chosen priest is not that relevant to your life. 
You may never heard of Melchizedek. But the God who created the universe has decided this is relevant for everyone everywhere. He declares it on oath 900 years over before Jesus comes, before Jesus arrives. It's a universe-defining fact. It's just not going to change. Don't be fooled by how short the verse is. Without hyperbole, this is more important than anything we'll hear about national politics or European politics in the next few months. I'm not exaggerating, because this defines the universe, every nation. If you think across the whole Bible story, actually, I'm not sure there are many declarations as big as this. I think the closest you get, actually, is something God said to Adam right at the start, the first human. He said, if you eat of this tree, if you sin, you will surely die. That was God on record. And do you know, we're sitting here facing the consequences of that. We sit here aging, dying, grieving people. Because when God goes on record, it defines the universe. Humanity did sin, and so do die. Other big promises, the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him, the promise to David that there'd be a big king, and here we are, a multitude of different nationalities sitting under King Jesus from David's line. God defines the universe when he speaks, and here's another one, verse 4. The Lord's sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's just a fixed fact. It doesn't matter whether you like it or you don't like it, it's just true. That's point one. Actually, our second point is that we should like it. It's actually really good true news, this verse. I'm going to give us kind of four steps to try and show us how good this news is. Firstly, 2a, it's good news because Jesus the King over us is also the priest for us. Jesus the King over us is also the priest for us. Now, what does a priest do? Why might we need one? Well, simply put, the priest stands between sinful, imperfect people and a perfect, holy God. He intercedes for them, that is, he prays on their behalf. He offers sacrifices to cover their sins. He's someone on our side. And so it's an absolutely marvelous thing that Jesus is not just the king over us, verse 1, but the priest for us, verse 4. That is, he's walked in our shoes. He became fully human. He was fully tempted. He can help us in the daily struggles. I wonder if that's a word someone needs to hear this morning. Some of us will be facing acute suffering and battles at the moment. Many of us will be caring for people in that situation. Well, if you're feeling like you're walking through a dark valley at the moment, just look at that verse on the screen from Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what is it for you? Maybe you find the recurring temptation to give in on a particular sin, the kind of badgering of the devil. Maybe you find that 
so hard to resist. You just want to put your satisfaction before God's word. Well, Jesus, the Jesus of the wilderness, knows what it's like, how it feels to keep saying no. Some of us here have been misunderstood or rejected or abandoned by those who should love us most. Jesus of Galilee knows the loneliness of having your family turn against you. Some of us here battle longings for gifts that God hasn't given us. It might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be health. The Jesus of Gethsemane, he knows what it's like to pray with tears to keep trusting that God's will is good when it hurts. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. From what I understand, in, in medieval Catholicism, and actually still for some today, part of the appeal of praying to Mary or praying to other saints was that they were more approachable. I mean, the triune God is so majestic. Jesus is so exalted, so holy, so pure, he wouldn't understand. Maybe, maybe Mother Mary could put a word in for me, perhaps. Ask for leniency. At least those human saints will understand. But that is to forget who Jesus actually is. It's to deny the the real in-our-shoes priesthood of Jesus. That's point 2A. King Jesus is not just over us. He's priest for us. But actually, it gets better. The good news gets better because he doesn't just sympathize with our sin. You can find lots of priests who will do that for you. He doesn't just sympathize with our sin. He solves it. This is 2B. Jesus, the king, is a priest of a different kind. Now, I realize some here may not particularly feel you need the services of a priest to deal with your sin. Maybe life is ticking along, there's no major crises, everything's fine. But let me try and persuade you from Psalm 110 that actually we desperately do need a priest. Just have a look, scan your eyes through Psalm 110 and have a think. What would, what would, what would happen if verse 4 wasn't there? If you take verse 4 out of this psalm, where would that leave us? Where would we fit in the psalm without a priest in the middle? There are only two groups of people in this psalm. Look at verses 1 to 3 where we were last week. There are only two groups. In verse 1, there are enemies of the king, and they're going to be crushed under his feet eventually. Verse 5 and 6, they're going to be judged. They're going to be shattered. There are enemies of the king. And then there's a second group, verse 3. There's this people of the king who offer themselves freely and wear holy garments. There are only two groups in the psalm. So let me ask you a question. Taking your life as a whole, right from the start, which category would you put yourself in? Has the consistent pattern of your life history from the start been one of voluntary, willing, holy living for God and his King Jesus? Let's make it easier. If you've become a Christian, let's just do it from the day you became a Christian. 
Since then has the consistent pattern been holy, voluntary, willing service of the king. Let's be honest, has even this week been? I don't know what your answer is, but I know the answer that David, the writer of this psalm, would have given. We saw this a few weeks ago in the evening in Psalm 51. He writes a psalm just after his committing adultery with Bathsheba and writes this, I know my transgressions and my sin ever before me. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. He wrote it when he was really in a mess. Adultery, murder, those are serious things. And yet, his confession, it's really striking. He doesn't say, oh, that was a blip. You know how politicians do, I misspoke, as if, as if normally I don't tell lies. <laughs> David admits, this is who I am. My sin is always before me. Just think about it for ourselves. Jesus' people are supposed to be willing and holy. Imagine if we... Um, developed a willingometer, like a, a thing you can wear on your wrist. Like a fitness tracker, that counts your steps, but this is like a willingness tracker. It counts how willing you are to serve Jesus and speak for Jesus day by day. What would the graph look like, the data? Imagine if, there's no particular dress code at Chalmers, but imagine if we said, actually, we're going to be in God's presence on a Sunday morning, so you need holy garments, utterly pure clothing. It's the only appropriate thing to wear before God. And so you, you kind of rifle through the cupboards of the last few months. You think about everything you've done in the office, in the bedroom, at school, at work, at home. Just looking for anything that's clean enough for a holy God. How confident would you be? You see, left to ourselves, we're not clean enough to approach a holy God. We have a sin problem. We're on a collision course. We're going to end up in verses 5 to 7. We'll see more of that next week. Unless we have a priest, verse 4. You'll see up on the screen, King David himself knew that, some, that um, sacrifices and burnt offerings were not enough. Animal sacrifices would not solve this problem. Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Of course it is, because God said, if you sin, you will surely die on record. A human death's required. My death. There was something half right in that thing my friend said in London. How could I ever ask God for anything? How could I approach the living God half right? And yet, he didn't realize the priest he had, Jesus, this priest of a different kind, what do I mean by a different kind? Well, yes, it is time, verse 4, to talk about Melchizedek. You're a priest forever, says God, after the order of Melchizedek. Even if you know your Bible, that name is actually quite a surprise that it comes up here. See, the high priests in Israel, if we skip on a slide, the high priests in Israel came from the tribe of Levi, people like Aaron and his family. That's what you'd expect, after the order of Aaron. But Jesus isn't in the tribe of Levi. He's not after the order of Aaron, but after Melchizedek. Surprising, actually, because in Israel, the roles of the king and the priest were kept separate, two different tribes, Judah and Levi. 
Actually, there was just one guy back in Genesis. There was one guy who was a king and a priest. His name was Melchizedek. It's amazing. We only get four verses about him. The the, the bit that Robin read from Genesis, that's the entirety of the Old Testament about Melchizedek until this psalm. And yet there are all sorts of details in there that show it was a big deal. Abraham paid him tithes. That's one of the, the ways we say, well, this is a big deal. And what's going on is right at the start of the story, God placed a, a trailer, a spoiler, if you will, in Genesis about what the real solution would be, the real priest we need. There's other things like that in Genesis. Um, Adam was promised a, a serpent crusher, just one verse, but it points to Jesus. And here's another one, Melchizedek, a king priest, a different kind of priest to the ones they were used to in Israel. Now, Hebrews takes five chapters to explain how amazing Melchizedek is. We're not going to do all of that now. You'll be pleased to know. But I want us to see the the contrast with the priests of Israel, the contrast with priests after the order of Levi or Aaron. Levi and Aaron, they could do sympathy. They were sinners too. But they couldn't solve sin. There were lots of things originally that showed what they did was not enough. They'll come up on the screen. The Day of Atonement had to be repeated every year, so that showed it wasn't permanently forgiven, resolved. The priests kept dying, so you just got used to one you liked, and then they had to be replaced. Worse, the priests kept sinning. The next one was often worse. They kept having to atone for themselves as well as the people. And of course, fundamentally, an animal substitute just isn't a substitute. Maybe a picture, but it's not dealing with the problem with Adam, that universe-defining promise that human death is the punishment for human sin. And so most obviously and categorically of all, in Israel there was this massive curtain saying, keep out. It sat in front of the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, right in the center of the camp. God's throne was put, but no one could get close. Keep out. You will be consumed. No one in Israel approached the throne with confidence. In fact, I tell a lie. There were two people who did it once. Aaron's sons, Adab and Abihu. They thought they could approach God any time they liked. And they were incinerated, like literally, by God's consuming holiness. That's why the curtain was there, for their own safety. It was just very clear that the Levitical sacrifices and their priestly work had not opened the way to approach. And so enter a different priest, a priest like Melchizedek, a priest who doesn't just sympathize with us, he comes to substitute for us. He does what we can't do. He solves the problem. Whereas their sacrifices were repeated, including for their own sins, Jesus never sins and does one sacrifice of himself. He lives in our shoes. He lives the life we should have. He dies the death we deserve. My king steps into my life as my priest. He is shattered so that I don't face it. From verse 5. Hebrews puts it like this. Since therefore the children, that's us, partook in sharing flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death 
He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is dealing with God's anger, for the sins of the people. I remember the first time I understood that paragraph. I was blown away, actually. I'd always thought Jesus came down to earth to just to reveal God, to make God known to us. And that's, there's truth in that, John 1. But actually, the reason why Jesus took on a body, why God the Son became a human being with flesh and blood and ankles and hands, was so that nails could go through them. So he could die for us. And that frees us, frees us from the fear of death, frees us from fear about that question, why should I let you into my heaven? It's great news. And we can be sure it works because of point C. Point C, Jesus, the priest king, is sat down. He sat down at God's right hand. We saw this last week with the king. He's already sat on the throne. He's already enthroned. Now we're seeing it with the priest. He's already sat down, which means he's already finished. It's done. Atonement is complete. Uh, Let me read from Hebrews 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, his death, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's just absolutely wonderful news. The work of the Levites and Aaron, they were just never finished. There was always another sacrifice to do, but the work of our priests, King Jesus, well, it's done. He sat down. It does mean if you ever get a sniff of someone saying there's still a contribution to make on top of Jesus' death, a kind of, yeah, Jesus' death is brilliant. We all take Jesus' death seriously, but you also need to do this. Whatever, God God judges us on the whole life, or our sanctification contributes to our justification. Well, be warned The job is done. What are we doing when we eat this meal in a moment? We're not contributing. It's not some extra top-up sacrifice. It's not the mass. It's a celebration of a finished work. It's sometimes hard to believe that, that when we gather as Christians, we're not actually coming to do something for God primarily. We're coming to listen to what he's done for us. Remember that great curtain in Israel? We'll put it back up on the screen. That great curtain that meant even Aaron, the high priest, the kind of special holy guy with holy clothes and everything, even he could only go in once a year just to offer atonement and then run back out to safety again. Well, now that Jesus is at God's right hand, our priest has been granted permanent entry into the holy throne room. 
Let me read Hebrews 8, verse 1. You don't need to turn there. The point we have is, that we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent the Lord set up, not man. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. Where before that curtain hung as this kind of permanent keep out sign. Keep out for your own safety. Well, right now our priest has entered and entered permanently. If we click on a slide, he has entered the throne room and he did so by tearing the curtain wide open. So therefore, don't be so foolish as to think that anything we do opens the door of heaven wider. You sometimes get that. You sometimes get people thinking that sung worship in a Christian meeting, whether it's contemporary rock or choral, kind of even song, sometimes people feel that that's kind of opening the door of heaven. The curtain's already torn. The door is wide open. Jesus is our worship leader, and he's already led us right in. Likewise, sometimes we think the sincerity or the wording of our prayers is what's going to open the ears of heaven. Jesus has already opened the door. That question I ask about your quiet times, does the confidence go up and down depending on your week? It's not your week that means you get listened to as you pray. The door isn't swinging open and closed depending on our performance. And finally, this wonderful arrangement, the door wide open, it's going to be there forever, permanently, eternally. This is point D. Jesus, the, the priest king, he sat at God's right hand forever. Just remember Psalm 110 verse 4 one more time. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is actually another of those real puzzles of Psalm 110. How actually can someone be a priest forever? How could you manage that? A puzzle before Jesus, but once the resurrection has happened, well, it makes sense. He lives forever as our priest. Just turn with me to page 1004, the, the third reading we had. Page 1004, so you can see it for yourself. said before, Hebrews is just helping us to understand and apply Psalm 110 to us. But I just want to read from verse 16 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. So page 1004, verse 16, explaining Jesus, our priest after the likeness of Melchizedek. Verse 16, Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That's talking about how he became a a priest like Levi or Aaron. He had to be in the right family tree. That's what the law said. But that's not how Jesus became a priest. Listen, this is amazing. Listen to how he becomes a priest. His qualification is the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I absolutely love that verse. What qualifies Jesus to be the priest of Psalm 110 is the fact he cannot die. 
He's always there. That's how he can be a priest forever for us. Look, look on to verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is just a marvelous, marvelous verse. If you are a believer, however your prayer life is right now, whatever you thought when that question about quiet times flashed up on the screen, oh, I don't even have them. Whatever you thought, well, Jesus has been praying. And his intercession is brilliant. He always lives to make intercession for us. He's always saying, I paid for that. I died for that. He's one of mine. She's with me. And so turn over the page to chapter 10, verse 19, for the application. And this is where we'll close. Chapter 10, verse 19. Given all of the last five chapters of explanation about Melchizedek, chapter 10, verse 19, here's the application. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised on oath is faithful. Place our confidence in Jesus alone. There's absolutely no reason for a Christian to struggle with sin alone. I mean, yes, we have each other, but far more than that, we have a high priest who understands, who sympathizes. There's no reason for a Christian to, to sit with a, a guilty conscience or an uneasy conscience. Go to the throne of grace, confess your sin, and enjoy complete forgiveness. There's no reason for a Christian to feel, I've got to make it up to God if I've really messed things up. You never could. Even our good works are totally stained. But our priest, he's done plenty. And there's no reason for a Christian to look anywhere else, which we'll think about next week. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the appointments in Psalm 110, and especially this morning for the appointment of Jesus as our high priest, our great priest, our king priest. Thank you that he doesn't just sympathize with us, he solves our sin problem. He substitutes himself, his life in our place, his death in our place. And we do pray so much that the fruit of this wonderful truth would be real confidence, real prayer, real dependence on you. 
And for any here who don't yet know that kind of access to you, the living God, we pray that you would help them to realize that Jesus died for them too. In Jesus' name, amen.